A few years ago, there was an article that came out in the Washington Post. It was titled, Liberal Churches Are Dying as Conservative Churches Thrive. Now, I need to define those two terms, liberal and conservative, because we probably immediately think political, right? But here, they're speaking primarily theologically. Liberal churches were the churches that compromised God's word. They no longer stood on the authority of Scripture. They would rather change with the culture. They want to change with the times. They want to be relevant. Conservative churches, on the other hand, are churches that stand on the authority of the word. What I found interesting was that this article asks the question, why is it that liberal churches, churches that are changing with the culture, dying? And why are conservative churches, like ours, thriving? The article is several pages long, and they go through uh, a study that was conducted by Pew Research on mainline denominations. The researchers were baffled as to why liberal denominations were largely in decline, because they thought if churches change with the times, they would continue to be relevant and they would grow. Now, they did find in some cases that liberal churches would explode in attendance and growth, when they would take such positions that our culture takes on sexuality. But then within 10 to 15 years, those churches are closing their doors. Why is that? The article goes on to quote uh, a bishop who wrote a book titled, Why Christianity Must Change or Die. In it, he argues that churches must abandon their literal interpretation of the Bible if they wish to survive the changing times. However, the study that the researchers conducted show that his work is not true. He wrote that book 20 years ago, saying that the church, if it's going to survive the next 20 years, must change with the times. It must step off of its literal interpretation of the Bible. It must not stand on the authority of God's word anymore, and it must embrace what the culture embraces to be true. Here we are 20 years later, and the church, the conservative church in America, is thriving. Liberal churches are not. Why is that? Here's the funny thing. The researchers couldn't conclude why conservative churches were thriving. They didn't understand it. They just couldn't understand how a church that stands on the authority of God's word could thrive. They thought that the church needed to change and be relevant. This morning, I want to share with you why I believe conservative churches, churches like ours, thrive. It's really simple, and it's fascinating this, the researchers couldn't conclude this. But it's also a testament to how great and glorious our God is. You see, the reason why conservative churches thrive is because we believe God's word to be true. We leave it to be inerrant, infallible. We believe it to be precise, that it changes how we perceive this world. I also think that conservative churches thrive because in those churches, the gospel of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed and taught. So this morning, we're going to turn to a passage in Romans that is just saturated with gospel truth. Let us remember what Christ has done for sinners like us. And remember that even though there are some churches that want to change with the times. The true church of Jesus Christ will never fall from his word.
because it is him who holds his church and builds it. If you have your Bibles, I would ask that you open them and turn to Romans 5. We're going to be looking at verses 6 to 11 this morning. Romans chapter 5. This is Paul writing to the church in Rome. He writes in verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from him, him from the wrath of God? For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom now we have received reconciliation." Let's turn now to our first point. It is for the ungodly that Christ has died for. This is taken directly from verse 6, where Paul says, At the right time Christ died for the ungodly. But let's unpack that first verse. What does Paul mean when he states, While we were weak? The NIV translates it to powerless, which I like that translation a lot. What Paul is talking about here is the condition of humanity after the fall. For the past several months, we've been in the book of Genesis, studying Genesis, and we saw that things were great up until Genesis 3, and then the fall happened. What happened at the fall, and how does it affect us as humans? See, our natural condition, our current state of being, is that of sin. We've been affected by sin. The whole of our being is, is affected by sin. So what does that mean for us when we live our day-to-day lives? It means that our moral ability is compromised by sin. So now it's moral inability, which essentially means we cannot choose the things of God on our own. That we are enslaved to our sin now. That sin affects everything we do. Another way to put it is we're spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We're spiritually dead, unable to come to life spiritually. Sin has separated us from God. We are now children of wrath, which means under his judgment. So we are ungodly 
because of our sin. So Paul says that Christ died for the ungodly. We, as sinners, are the ungodly. You know, in in Christian circles today, we kind of have this idea that humanity isn't actually dead spiritually, that we're just kind of sick. We're okay. We can still choose to do the things of God. We're, We're good. We can do it apart from him. It's fine. There's an illustration that's often used uh, when the gospel is presented. It's this idea that you fell overboard, and you're in the ocean, and you're flailing around, you're trying to keep your head above the water, and someone throws you the <clears throat> lifeguard tube to pull you in. All you have to do is grab it, and you'll be saved. What's wrong with that illustration is the Bible paints a very different picture. If we were to look at it from a biblical point of view, you're already at the bottom of the ocean, dead. You can't grab onto anything. If you're talking about your moral ability, you can't. You're dead spiritually. You're at the bottom of the ocean. So how do you get rescued? How are you saved? It's simple. Christ goes to the bottom of the ocean, brings you up on shore, and breathes his life into you. You're born again. So our predicament then as sinners is we are spiritually dead and children of wrath. Where is our hope? How can we save ourselves? What can be done about our predicament? Don't worry, Paul is building to what can be done about our predicament. He even mentions it here in verse 6. So not only are we spiritually dead, powerless, and weak, we are also described as ungodly. We see in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now I've heard this passage proclaimed many times. It's a great passage to illustrate the gospel. What I also find when this happens is people go, yeah, all have sinned, but, you know, we're still, we're still good. We're fine. We're all right. It's that idea that we're just, you know, spiritually sick. We're not actually dead. But when the Bible says, for all have sinned, that means all. Okay? It's not just some people. It's not the people that like Ohio State. It's all people have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah describes even our our besties, even if we think we do good works, he describes them that we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Another version says like dirty rags. They don't add up. They can't save us because they're tainted by our sin. So again, I ask, where is our hope? if we cannot save ourselves, if we cannot measure up to God's righteous and perfect standard, what can we do? But Paul triumphantly answers this in verse 6. He says, Christ died for the ungodly. So if we're sinners and we're ungodly, I have some good news for you. Christ died for you. He came for you. Christ died for the ungodly, which are sinners. This is a quote from the reformer Martin Luther. He writes, 
when Satan tells me I am a sinner, he comforts me immeasurably since Christ died for sinners. Oftentimes, Satan, who is the accuser, he likes to rub our face in our sin. Yes, you're so spiritually dead, you'll never add up to God's standards. Oh, you, you failed again? You sinned again? Guess what? God doesn't love you anymore. But like Luther, it's actually the exact opposite. When we understand what Christ has done, even when we mess up, we need to remind ourselves of the first things, the first importance of the gospel, that Christ died for sinners. You see, in the Christian life, we sometimes think of the gospel only as the starting point in the Christian life. Yes, it's the starting point, but guess what? We need to remind ourselves of the gospel every day. Because if we don't, we'll fall prey to Satan's traps like that. Paul furthers this logic of <clears throat> how deep and amazing and marvelous it is that Christ died for sinners by then talking about how one would scarcely die for a righteous person and one would dare to die for a good person. You see, Christ is dying for the worst kind of people, the worst of us. And Paul is saying, look, look at the marvelous grace and love that is because there are people who won't even die for a good person most of the time. There are people that will scarcely die for a righteous person. Yet we have Christ here, our Lord and our Savior, who looks at us in our fallenness and dies for us. The depth of God's love is what is going to bring us to our next point this morning. That God shows his great eternal love for us by sending Christ to die in our place so that we would be justified. I'm going to go ahead and just read verse 8 again. But God. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I love that phrase, but God. Even when I mess up, I remember, but God. Even when, <clears throat> even when I fall short when I'm driving, you know, you get stuck behind that slow person, you're like, ah! And you get frustrated, impatient, even when I fall in that regard, I remember that Christ died for me. And that because he died for me, I can now live for him. See, given our predicament as sinners who could not save ourselves, this was the triune God stepping in to demonstrate his great eternal love for us in the act of salvation. We need to talk about the wrath of God now. There is this notion in Christianity today that God the Father is the wrathful judgment one and Jesus is the good loving God. And that what happened at salvation is God was just so angry and he just wanted to 
spill blood. He just wanted to kill someone. So Jesus goes, I'll do it. This is a false dichotomy. This is a lack of understanding the triune God and his nature. So I have a couple points in helping us think through the wrath of God. First, we need to understand the nature of God, his character. When we truly understand that God is holy and what that means for us as sinners, we begin to see the depth of our need. And yes, that this makes God a just God for executing his judgment against sin. If God did not execute his judgment against sin, he would not be a just God, a righteous God. He detests sin. Sin is contrary to who he is. So first off, with the wrath of God, he has to judge our sin. He must judge our sin. He can't let it go unpunished, or he would be unjust. Secondly, God the Father actually is loving. That whole idea that he's just the wrathful God, the judgmental God of the Old Testament— People who say that actually really, in my opinion, haven't studied the Old Testament deeply. Because if you study the Old Testament in depth, you actually see that everything the Lord does for his people is motivated by his love for them. He is loving. When we recognize that we as sinners don't even deserve to be saved, that we justly deserve the punishment given to us for our sin, we see the depth of God's love and his grace towards us when he does save us. Third, when we turn to the New Testament, we see that God the Father is so loving that he sent his one and only begotten Son to take that punishment for us, to die in our place, to die for ungodly sinners. That's, that's grace. That's marvelous love that he has towards sinners. And this is something that was decided in eternity's past. So I, admit, I titled this sermon, The Great Eternal Love of God, for a reason. Because God's love was eternal. You see, when the fall happened... It wasn't like God had to scramble and go, okay, what's plan B? What can I do? No, his plan all along was to demonstrate his great love, to demonstrate his attributes, his perfections. So love is the primary motivating factor. So the grand plan of redemption is a demonstration of God's love. This is comforting, because sometimes we ask, you know, why, why did the fall happen? Why didn't God stop it? I don't presume to know what God was thinking, but I do know that this was his way of showing his love, the greatest demonstration of love the world would ever know. And this salvation from this plan of redemption is only possible through the blood of Jesus Christ. Don't buy into the lies of the world that you can take whatever path you want 
to get to God. As if God's on this big mountain and you can take any path up to get to him. There's only one way you're saved, and that's through Christ. By his blood. So what do we as sinners do then with this news? We accept the free gift of salvation. We repent of our sin, and we place our faith and trust in the Lord. So today, as you're hearing God's word proclaimed to you, you're going to be one of two people here in this life. Either you are saved, and you're in Christ already, or you're not. You're outside of Christ and under the wrath and judgment of God. So what happens then when we are saved? How is it that Christ's blood saves us? Well, Paul tells us that we are justified by the blood of Christ. We need to talk about what justified means, what justification means. To be justified means to be declared righteous. You're probably thinking, okay, yeah, that's great. Christ's blood makes me righteous, but how am I exactly saved? You see, Christ not only had to die for our sins, but he had to give us something in return for it. Theologians call this the great exchange. So at the cross... Christ takes your sin upon himself, takes the punishment for that sin, the consequence, dies, is rose again, and what we receive in turn is his righteousness. You see, Christ didn't just come to die. He also came and lived the life we could never live to fulfill the law of God because no one here can fulfill the law of God. You can try, but I think you're going to run into the same issue the Israelites ran into. You just mess up over and over and over again because we are sinners. But Christ kept the law perfectly. So in this great exchange, we are clothed with his righteousness. We are justified. Philippians says it best. This is Paul writing to the, Philippian ch or to the church in Philippi. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. When you are saved, you are now in Christ, and you receive all of the blessings that come with that. What a mighty Savior! What great love! That we, as sinners, can now stand before God justified by the works of Christ. You know, with my students, especially when I was teaching the middle schoolers here, one of my favorite questions to ask them was, do you contribute anything to your salvation? And they'd all be like, uh, well, some would say, yeah, we, we, we contribute some good works to our salvation. It's like, no, 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 you don't. Then other people would be like, no, we don't contribute anything to our salvation. And I'd be like, well, actually you do. And they'd be like, what? well, what is it? Well, as Jonathan Edwards said, the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. And did you know that we are saved by works? They're just not our works. They're the works of Christ. 
So we turn now to our final point. Only in Christ are we, as sinners, restored to a right relationship with God. See, we're not only saved by the blood of Christ and now in him, we're also reconciled to God the Father. This, this is huge. Because remember, at the fall, we're separated from the God who made us because of our sin. No way to bridge that gap. We can't do it alone. But through Christ's work on the cross, we are reconciled to God the Father. Romans 8.15 says it this way, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Referring to God as our Father is something for those only in Christ. God is our Father. It is so wonderful that we can now relate to him as Father, that we can go to our Heavenly Father. What a tremendous comfort and joy that is. We talked about the great exchange. We receive, you know, Christ's righteousness, but we also are reconciled to the Father. Reconciliation means to restore to a right relationship. We are <clears throat> brought back into fellowship with God our Father. And this is all a product of the new life that is found in Christ. As I said before, you're either in Christ or out of Christ and under the judgment of God. You can't attain these blessings apart from Christ. That's the mistake of the liberal church. They still want to say, we're in Christ, but we're rejecting his teachings because we'd rather have the world. You can't have one foot in both. You're either in Christ or you're not. So we receive his righteousness and are justified. And our response then to being in him is to live for him. Some people receive the gospel, they hear it, and they're like, good. Got my fireproof insurance. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to continue living how I want. No. A true response to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is submitting to his word, to living for him. And that is a joyous thing. Paul says it this way in Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. When you repent of your sin and you believe and trust in Christ as your Savior, you are a new creation. You are born again. The old has passed away. Now, this doesn't mean that you're free from sin in this life, but what it does mean is 
you now get to live for Christ and he sends you his Holy Spirit to help you understand God's word and to keep the commands of God. That's why Paul can say that he's been crucified with Christ. His flesh has been crucified with Christ and it is no longer him who lives, but Christ who lives in him. So what is your response to this good news? Do you scoff at it and think it's foolish? You think it's foolish that a holy God would send his only son to take your place? Or maybe your response is to get down on your knees and to weep with joy at what Christ has done for a sinner like you. You see, Christ knows every sin you have ever committed. And he still sets his lovingly, loving gaze upon you. You see, Paul tells us in verse 11 of our passage this morning that our response to the good news is to rejoice. And if you think about it, that is the natural response when we understand what Christ did for us in salvation. When we understand the great depths of his love and what Christ did, we have nothing else to do but rejoice and to live for him. You see, we talk about sin and judgment because if you don't, you'll never understand the depths of God's love. There are Christians that say, oh, just don't talk about the bad stuff. Just share Jesus with them. Okay, but who is this Jesus and what has he done? Why did he come? You can talk about love all day long, but if you don't place love in its proper context by sharing the bad news, you'll never understand the depth of God's love. And when you understand the depth of God's love, you rejoice. And you recognize that God would have been totally just to not make a way for salvation at all. But he did. His grace is amazing, as the hymn says. His love is deep. So returning to the article I opened with, the reason why liberal churches continue to die is because they don't have their hope, their grounding in Christ, and they don't stand on his word. You know, it's, it's funny. The article concludes that conservative churches and their literal interpretation of the Bible continue to flourish, but the article states that those conservative churches are wrong for doing that, even though they're flourishing. They still think that, in the end, the church needs to compromise and get with the times to be relevant. The only thing the church needs to do to stay relevant is to continue to proclaim the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and to stand on his word and let it inform our actions, thoughts, and deeds. So today, First Baptist Church, I want you guys to continue to stand on the word. I want you guys to remember the gospel of Jesus Christ every day so you can continue to live for him to have the strength to <clears throat> fight against your sin, 
to fight against temptation, to stand firm. We're living in a culture that is growing increasingly more hostile to Christians. It's no longer cool to be a Christian in the United States, which means standing on God's word is going to cost you now. Don't waver from his truth. If that's anything you take away from today is believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and don't waver from his truth. Stand firm. So I have several questions for you as we close our time here. First, do you know Christ? Have you come to him yet? If you have not, don't delay. Come to him. Here's the good news. He's not going to turn you away. There's nothing that you could do that would be so bad for him to turn you away. Come to him. He is gentle and lowly, and he's going to give you rest. You know, last week at um, VBS, we talked about the gospel of peace. So our response to the gospel is one of joy. But guess what? When we embrace and believe the gospel, we have peace. My next question is for those of you who are in Christ. Do you remind yourself of the gospel? Have you given in to the temptation that the gospel is only the starting point and not something for our whole lives? Do you return again to the grand story of redemption? If you do not, I pray that you do. I pray that you remind yourself. When you remind yourself of the gospel, you will discover an immense joy and peace that flows from it. Because when you remind yourself of the gospel, you remind yourself of his great eternal love and goodness. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord God, we just come before you to thank you for your great eternal love. That your love is so great that you would save sinners like us. Lord God, I just pray that if anyone does not know you, that they have heard your words today and that they are considering coming to you, repenting of their sin and placing their faith and trust in you. Lord God, you are merciful and gracious. You won't turn anyone away. Lord God, in you we find rest, we find our peace. Lord, equip us by your spirit to stand firm. I pray these things in your holy name. Amen.